is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's uh, edition of Fuse and Focus. I'm joined by Sasha Pereira. Hello. And Luke Kiohane. Hello. And uh, this week, we've got three stories for you. And we're going to be kicking off with an international story, which looks at the 10-year anniversary of the Syrian civil war. So we're going to go to Sasha first. Hi, everyone. Well, this week marks the 10th year of the uh, civil war in Syria. Um, and this piece is just going to reflect uh, back on the 10 years, look at the history of it a little bit more in detail, and then ask questions pertaining to what our government's doing and could it do more to help out um, in the context of uh, threats to democracy becoming more and more apparent in our world. Tensions between the West and Syria are not a new phenomenon, and the former's involvement in the region has arguably contributed to the suffering and instability which people of, of Syria now face. But with every crisis lies an opportunity for change. So what can we do to help affect a future for the benefit of the Syrian people and for all those who, no matter what their origin, desire democracy over the despots that currently dictate their lives? Ten years have now passed since the outbreak of the civil conflict in the nation that's nestled near the heartland of Mesopotamia. Consequently, the region which nurtured some of the earliest civilizations has since become in many minds a contrast to the life it once embodied. When you hear the name Syria, rather than picturing the cradle of civilization, countless images of destruction, desertion, and death come to mind. This is because in the last decade, a desire for democracy has driven a desperate people to challenge their despotic leader, Bashar al-Assad, who, with the support of his British wife, has waged war on the population he has a duty to protect. In 2011, a wave of revolution swept from Tunisia across North Africa and into the Middle East, leading to the demise of, of some of the most established and ruthless regimes these regions have ever seen. But in Syria, the Assads have clung to power by brutalizing their population and depriving them of international aid. As with other movements that rose under the banner of the Arab Spring, these youthful protests began peacefully. Unfamiliar with the covert aggression of their government and still blessed with the idealistic innocence of youth, many young people rushed to revolutionize their country, pleading for political reform. Omar al-Shurgre was only 15 years old when protests reached the streets of his city, Dara. But he was also amongst those, for better or worse, who were able to convince their parents to let them participate in the mass movement. Armed with a white rose handed to him by a fellow protester, he entered the crowd who chanted for freedom. In response, Al-Assad sent in soldiers, intelligence operatives, and tanks. In, in hope and out of fear of what may come, the protests changed their chance to appeal to those who had been dispatched to crush them. The army and the people are siblings, they called. But the military carried out its orders indiscriminately, committing the fratricide Omar and his counterparts had pleaded against. Apart from a brief, hi brief hiatus in April, when Assad sat down with a rebel delegate from Dara, repression continued for nine months until protesters lost faith in their tactics. Belief in their cause, however, did not suffer the same fate. As a result, roses, pickets and placards were replaced with weapons escalating the conflict into a civil war which has since torn the country apart. Tensions between the West and Syria are, are as deep as they are old, and the current crisis is arguably a byproduct of a 40-year-old conflict which began between Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez al-Assad, and the then US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Whilst in power, Hafez had wanted to strengthen and unite the Arabic nations to bring stability and power back to the region. 
a state which he believed was only possible if peace was brokered between the Arabs and Israel, allowing Palestinian refugees to return to their homeland. However, Kissinger believed that such a change would prevent the creation of the world order which he had envisioned. In turn, he set out to fractionalize the Arabs and break their alliances. To combat this, Hafez turned to Iran and its new revolutionary leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, who had come to power after spearheading the Islamic Revolution in 1979, which replaced an authoritarian monarchy with a repressive theocratic republic. Today, this relationship between Iran and Syria remains strong, as, do the, as does their understandable distrust and disdain of Western influence and ideas within the region. As a result, Khomeini's government has backed local militias who have attacked Syrian rebels on the ground, while another of the West's notorious rivals, Russia, has provided crucial and often devastating escort to the Assad regime. Russia's role has also been influential at a diplomatic level, vetoing all 15 resolutions put to the UN Security Council, which have aimed to support, the, to support rebel groups, as well as the general public. The situation has been further complicated by the involvement of groups such as ISIL and Al-Nusra Front, who have taken advantage of the chaos to establish their own control. Despite stating that the only solution uh, to the situation is a political one, Britain, America and, and their allies have resorted to supporting their own local militias, primarily Syrian Kurdish groups such as the SDF and YPG, whilst also carrying out their own airstrikes on ISIL and the Iranian-backed militias, the most recent of which was authorised by President Biden last month. So far, the West has looked backwards, not forwards, to deal with the crisis. Ghosts brought home from Afghanistan have haunted our actions and hindered the ability to think out of proactive ways to help, help create a future of stability in Syria. Uncertain of our intelligence, we have refrained from putting troops on the ground for fear of being caught in the middle of another complex civil war that we don't understand. Instead, we have resorted to watching from on high as Syria is torn apart by, oppress by an oppressive government and competing rebel groups, while its people lose their lives and livelihoods. But we have a chance at change. Those who have managed to survive Syria and escape to Europe are our, are our opportunity to help create stability in the country, while setting an example to other peoples around the world that the West will not sit idly if despots deny the freedoms which their citizens desire. Our first point of call must be to understand those who have fled. What have been their experiences? What has this done to shape their understanding of the world? And what does this mean for their approach to politics home and abroad? If the case of Omar al-Shurgay is, is to be any indication of what we might expect from Syrian survivors, then the future looks hopeful because the boy who attended the first protest in Dara has faced unimaginable atrocities and yet as an adult now looks to, for resolution over conflict, seeking ways to rebuild his home by adapting his nightmares and turning them into dreams. Once we understand where these people are coming from, we can then begin to help manifest their ideas by providing them with political means to construct the foundations of the society they desire. This is not to suggest that we impose our own ideas on them. Instead, together we can attempt to form a situation which suits their people who have fought and fled for freedom. It might also be that through this process, we can learn something about ourselves and rediscover a meaning in our lives that has been so apparently absent since abandoning the reassuring but dangerous ideologies of the last century. So could and should our government do more? What do you guys think? Um... I, I really like the way you ended it and integrated in some personal stories. And I think that's a very important element that at least I kind of took from your report is this idea of providing context around the people that are involved. 
um, and you speak about kind of increasingly meaningless world, which we will touch uh, on as well with the um, with the story on GB News and News UK TV later on the show. But uh, what I think is important from this is the formation of personal context makes us kind of see the human tragedy to a greater extent because it's easy for us in the West to kind of sit, um, sit on our sofas and put on the news and see what's going on in Syria and feel like we're, we're not involved or we're not engaged with it. And when you are faced by the full human context of it, that's when we can come to more radical solutions and more em uh, empathetic and sympathetic solutions. Uh, and I guess that's what you were trying to allude to. And that's what I got from it. Yeah, I think exactly. that's, um, that's something that we need to do. And that's something that needs to be done within the West, within our media institutions, but also led by political initiative where um, obviously we can go into such a long conversation about this, about Western involvement in the Middle East and how that has contributed to the crisis. And also in the case of Syria, it's the lack of involvement, which was largely pacified by Russia for their own interests. So it's it's a very complex, multifaceted issue that could be spoken about for, for hours on end. Mm -hmm. But in terms of your report, I do think that a, a possible solution is looking at the human context and really getting to that subjectivity of the human, of the personal, to come to more empathetic solutions. Agreed. Luke, do you have any, um, anything to add? I think Peter's absolutely hit the, the nail on the head there. I think it's fantastic that your stories, again, as, as Peter said, touched on the human element of, of the Syrian crisis. Um, there's another part of it as well. And I think uh, you, you mentioned there about ways in which we can aid the Syrian people through the struggle is by understanding why they fled from Syria, understanding why they've chosen to undertake very, very dangerous journeys to migrate to Europe. Um, and I feel like the way that the, our society has gone in the last five, six years, I think, it may have gone even further back than that. But when we look at migrants and we look at people who are refugees as well, we, we look at them in a, in a negative way generally. And I think the, our politicians as well um, look at them as a, as a figure and people, not actual people, they're just figures on a, on a data screen saying these are the amount of people that have tried to enter into our country illegally. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't think we actually understand the human significance of why they're coming to this country. And then I think by looking at their stories and hearing their individual experiences, we're able to understand their stories. And then also, as a result, you know, give them assistance in the most appropriate way. And so just looking at them, as I said, is just like a figure. So I think yeah. that's a really important point, which I think our political discourse really, really misses out on in today's society. Yeah, yeah I'd like to build on that a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned how um, the view of migrants has sort of shifted, uh, especially in recent years, towards a political politicization of them. So they're considered in the context of, of, of policy and that which is totally devoid of any human uh, feeling. Let, let, um, let's just, I just wanted to throw in mm. this, in the height of the refugee crisis, do you remember when Katie Hopkins had uh, a piece published in The Sun when she was talking about migrants being cockroaches yeah, and yeah. sending in gunboats to not let people onto, uh, onto the shores of Britain? When you yeah. start comparing people to cockroaches, yeah, and yeah. Let, let, let's just remember this, this was rhetoric that was also used in the Rwandan genocide and mm. also speeches made, speeches made by Gaddafi um, just mm. before the Libyan civil war of when you start reducing people's lives to be to, to being subhuman dehumanized cockroaches that's mm. that's when we see a real issue in our society so i just wanted to throw that in there because yeah no i'd agree um the one thing i was just trying to get at was the the politicization is, is a is a crucial point because 
whilst whilst these these migrants shouldn't be politicized they should be dealt with as humans in a humanitarian way the the crisis itself does allude to other political issues that are going on at the moment specifically to do with um, democracy um and and threats to democracy which are very much a political issue so they are in migrant itself as well is inherently a political issue in terms of when the migrant crisis started it was um, just general European media, especially British media, which really focused on this term migrant, which I think personally is devoid of meaning because mm. migrant doesn't, it just means someone on the move. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a body that is essentially just on the move. And that kind of adds to this idea of them being dehumanized because if you put a label on it before saying, say, an asylum seeker or a refugee, there is a context, there is a cause to that. Whereas if you just yeah. label someone as a migrant, it is literally just this this endless person on the move. And I think it is also important to consider the labels that, w- that are used to kind of frame the narrative. Mm-mm-mm. So I was just adding to that point. Um, no, I agree. Well, it's an interesting point because, yeah, you're right. Migrants, aren't, well, when we, when we think of um, people coming from abroad, we mainly talk about them in terms of migrants rather than asylum seekers, which is the more humanitarian way to put it. Mm. um that, that acknowledges the conflict that they're fleeing from which is, no... refugee, which is which is what yeah. the syrian people are that they're, they're, they're fleeing war exactly in their country yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, f- I feel like the, the labeling of them as migrants kind of diminishes the context of what was going on in syria to kind of then shift off blame from european nations to take responsibility in it the same's happening in um in america as well and um the two are quite intimately tied if you can uh, if you bring in climate change because mm. um the syrian crisis well obviously the arab spring um was a significant catalyst in the fact that um revolution sprung up but before that um migration was also happening due to climate change um in syria i think two million people had already fled um their lands because they could no longer farm on them um and then and the same is happening in um latin america as well and the way that um, America is approaching their their issue was is obviously going to change under Biden. However, the when when uh, individuals reach the border of America, I was listening to Al Jazeera earlier. They are putting in cells basically. They're not they're not taken into communities really um, by the government. Uh, the the communities that would provide them with uh, with shelter, other than than like um, putting them in a block, um, are uh, Christian uh, groups primarily. Um, so it's it's a it's a real commonality between the rich industrial nations that um, have have chosen to view uh, refugees and and uh, climate um, migrants as as well not not in a humanitarian way at all. I guess um, kind of on the flip side of the coin, um, when you look at migration and you have the debate about kind of national sovereignty and the political community. And we're obviously going kind of into more like academic debates on that side. But um, on, on kind of the other side of what, what I'm saying is obviously open borders and inclusivity is something that we're framing this argument about. But then the other side is people will then argue back and say, but how many people can we let in until like yeah. the, the, the national community is full and we can't include any more? And this question of inside, outside inclusion and exclusion. These are debates that will always go on, especially in rich Western nations. But that, that's kind of like the question I'm throwing back is, do we do we just have open borders? And, and this isn't, I don't have an exact answer for this because I think it's a very complex issue. Mm. But how, how, how do we treat kind of migration and refugees 
with respect while also kind of then maintaining, I guess, ideas of national sovereignty in terms of orders and control and stuff like that. I think the first and foremost thing in our mind should be that no one wants to flee their home. I mean, there might be people that don't, don't fit with their culture or society and therefore want to move away. But for the most part, people would rather change the, their home rather than having to flee it and then never return, which is what a lot of um, Syrian refugees are having to do at the moment. So our, I think our focus should be primarily on, on giving the people that flee the means and opportunity to go back to their country um, with our support and change their country for the better, to, sh to shape it into an image where no one wants to flee from it and in, in fact wants to build on it and, and improve it. Um, I'm not sure how you go about doing that necessarily, but I think talking to the people about uh, who have fled already um, is, a, is a start. Um, and we can't just continue, continually support in a militaristic way. We have to look for a more humanitarian solution. So, our next story is the prospect of a British Fox News. Radio and TV news broadcasting in the UK is dominated by the BBC, where the Chartered Corporation boasts a long tradition of impartial, fair and balanced news, where news and political content on UK TV is regulated far more than other countries such as the United States. Where, unlike the US, the UK has long had strict rules on accuracy and impartiality, the broadcast code overseen by the regulator Ofcom prohibits the kind of blatant partisanship routinely supplied on American cable news channels such as Fox News and MSNBC. Yet two novel broadcasting ventures inspired by the media standards across the Atlantic are planning to launch partisan TV channels in the UK. Critics of the BBC from all scopes of the political spectrum have for a long time complained about the apparent bias of the BBC. Now this media bias seems to mean different things to different people. People on the left criticised the BBC for pandering to the establishment and conservative elites, whilst members on the right deemed the broadcaster to be the embodiment of, of insufferable woke liberalism. In a 2006 BBC seminar discussing the impartiality, a member of the BBC establishment, Andrew Marr, stated, The BBC is not impartial or neutral. It's a publicly funded urban organisation with abnormally large number of young people, ethnic minorities and gay people. It has a liberal bias, not so much a party political bias. It is better expressed as a cultural liberal bias. Allegations that the corporation lacks impartial and objective journalism seems to be a generational problem, with countless examples of complaints levied against the corporation. It seems that the most recent instalment of these generational debates is being fueled by the imminent arrival of the two new current affairs news channels. The Guardian has recently revealed that the two ventures are in the process of setting up TV channels with a more opinionated slant to rival the BBC. GB News, an effort linked to Liberty Global, will be helmed by former BBC executive and Theresa May's communication chief, Sir Robbie Gibbs. Gibbs, who seems overtly confrontational against the public service broadcaster, has repeatedly attacked his former employer over alleged lack of impartiality. Joining him in jumping ship from the BBC, Andrew Neal has rallied to the GB, New, the GB News cause, deeming it the right time to join a new right-leaning rolling news channel with aims to start broadcasting early next year. GB News has drawn comparisons with Fox News and promises to serve the vast number of British people who feel undeserved and unheard, end quote, by existing television news channels explicitly pitching itself into the middle of the culture war narrative. 
The other channel, which looks to launch as an online Netflix-like service, is a creature of the news media empire of Rupert Murdoch. Currently Fox News' executive chairman, Rupert Murdoch's forthcoming partisan television news channel will be called News UK TV, with media regulator Ofcom giving the go-ahead for the outlet to start broadcasting as soon as this is ready. The forthcoming entrance of these two news channels has sparked debate and fear of the foxification of British media. Support deems it to be a step in the right direction of delivering more partisan news that appeals to the people's sentiments, whereas critics see this as another step in the direction of spreading fake news, disinformation and fear in an increasingly polarised world. So, regarding the context uh, given of these two new media platforms, what are your opinions of allegations against supposed BBC bias? And do we need partisan news platforms which cater to people's political persuasions? It's a good question. It's an entirely new phenomenon, really, that we've had to start dealing with, isn't it? The, the idea that um, because there's so much information out there, you can almost type in anything onto, onto your, into your computer and get two completely opposing arguments for it. So, I don't know. I feel like the news channels that should be set up and, and no matter who they are, whether they're BBC or, or, or GB News or whatever it may be, should strive to, I mean, this is unrealistic, but strive to um, have a balanced and a shared view where even if you have a very contentious topic, which has a huge amount of debate, then you provide two different sides of the story and then you let your um, viewer decide based on their own research and based on their own understanding of what's going on, uh, rather than shoveling them one side and, and, and nothing, nothing but that. They do uh, say on paper reports from both Murdoch's and um, the GB News backed by Neil. They both claim that they will be delivering um, unbiased, impartial, et cetera, et cetera, reporting. Mm. Obviously, um, they, they also both openly state that they're going to be right-wing or right-leaning, which kind of contradicts the point yeah. of impartiality. Yeah. <laughs> which which yeah. I find quite confusing how in the same sentence you can say that you're going to be objective and impartial but then admit yeah. that yeah. and then admit that you will be delivering the right leading information yeah. um, what's what's your opinion on kind of this partisan debate Luke? Well I've been following this actually quite quite intensely over the last few months because I think it is quite interesting and um, I was watching one video and and about GB News in particular because GB News is, is going to work in a completely different way to BBC and Channel 4. Instead of being built around rolling news, Andrew Neil's attempt is to try and make news more focused on the presenters of news themselves. Um, it's actually something that the ITV were doing with Piers Morgan. It was centred on Piers Morgan mm. um, and Susanna and There's, there's rumours of um, Piers Morgan yes. joining GB News. Yeah, there is, there is rumours of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, and I think the way Andrew Neil wants it to work, and, you know, we can take this as it is, is this a very similar way into how LBC works on the radio. Now, how, how LBC get around impartiality rules is what they do is they they have a lot of most of their presenters are right leaning people like Ian Dale, Nick Ferrari. But then you've also got some liberal presenters as well. People like James O'Brien, for example. And by having that balance in presenters, although it's still overwhelmingly right wing in their content, they're able to bypass Ofcom rules. And I think that's exactly what Andrew Neil is trying to do here. He may say that he's trying to do impartial news. And if you look at the whole entire news setup, the whole 
channel itself, it probably is impartial in the sense that you've got right-leaning journalists and left-leaning journalists. But what he fails to say is that the right-leaning journalists will have the prime time slots. They'll be it'll be built around those presenters, people like himself or Pierce Morgan. Um, so that's exactly what's going to go on here. I think. I think it's not necessarily going to end up like Fox News because it Ofcom prevents those sort of things from happening. Um, but what will what we will see is stuff like LBC and the way that LBC works will be put into what how TV works, which people may be quite worried about, but that's that's the reality of what's going to happen. If I could also go back to your point about the BBC, because I think the BBC is one of those institutions where people don't realise its importance until we don't have it. Um, you know, I it's, it's such agree a, with that point. It's I, such I, a I vital institution. Um, and the fact that there's a possible, well, not, there's not a possibility, but the fact that at some point there may not be a BBC is very, very disheartening. And I feel like it's going to be, sadly missed if it ever does crumble and i hope it never does um and although of course the bbc gets things wrong uh on lots of occasions you know there's a lots of allegations towards bias on both sides you know the right say that it's it's a liberal woke media and the right mm. say uh, the, the left say that it's you know funded by lots of tory peers and etc cetera, etc cetera. but and it's, I think it's easy the... to be caught in that situation as well isn't it when you are kind of claiming to be impartial and you are in the middle when you're in the center you're in the center of the firing line effectively yeah absolutely and um i was on the, uh, the women in media conference at the moment that some of the students here on views and focus lead actually um they had laura kunzberg on their on their conference yesterday and she talked about that in her speech she talked about how the bbc you know rightly or wrongly the center of attention is always on them because they're funded by the public they have a responsibility to the people that they're broadcasting to mm. so of course naturally you're going to get a huge amount of um criticism leveled at them uh, quite unfairly and quite fairly you know in both sides of the coin but at the same time I feel like it's we need to make that we need to make the point that if we don't have the BBC in this country you know it can be a, a very very dangerous territory in terms of fake news and and just you know the the way in which the media could turn is a very nasty way. Yeah I, um, I think that leads really nicely to my second question um, if we kind of want to explore more so the social impact of this is um, regarding to the discourse surrounding fake news, culture wars, misinformation, uh, arguments have been made that the two new right-wing TV channels will further damage a deeply fractured Britain through this term foxification. What do you think on the matter of um, kind of a deeply divided Britain as it is and what these two news channels would deliver to, um, or make ill to that Britain? Well, I think we live in a deeply divided society in general, um, not just in Britain, but the, the world in, in, its, in, its all, in all its glory, really. Um, because in many ways, we've forgotten how to debate. And I think these um, channels epitomise that, especially Piers Morgan's strategy of, of interviewing, interviewing people. And if, if he's um, anything to go off for what, um, if he's going to be hired or whatever, and if there's anything to go off um, for what they will bring to the to, to our news um, outlets, it's, it's a dire situation because lots of people are now focusing on, on sound bites and little snippets because all our news is fed to us so shorthand, short, uh, short term, uh, because our lives move so quickly. That's all we, we have time really for. Um, rather than looking at news in terms of, or, or as news as a, as a way to help us get the start of the story and then looking deeper for ourselves. But uh, I'm not sure what the solution would be to combat that really. 
um, what well, I'm not thinking necessarily about solutions, but I think yeah, you've, you've raised some really interesting points there about how we are kind of drawn to consume this fast paced media, which kind of just throws sound bites at us. Um, I think that's significant because I, I, I do I do imagine that th these are the strategies that these two media platforms would employ in terms of their um, their, their own personal bias, which which they'll have when they're formed. Um, what, what do you think about this foxification issue, Luke? Well, as I was saying in, in my previous answer, I think I accidentally mm. answered partially that in my yeah. first reply. But um, yeah, I think that the, the foxification of of UK TV is is something that I don't think will happen. Um, okay. Purely down to the the, uh, the the control over news broadcasters in this country. Um, but I think Sasha is also right in saying that there should also be a a commitment by broadcasters to allow people to come up come up with their own opinions on things and it's actually something that radio do a lot better i think um by having call-ins and talking to people one-on-one -on -one. you are not only allowing them to have a say but you're also kind of not guiding them into saying a certain thing um whereas obviously on tv you don't have that you don't have people coming on as interviewers like j just j normal people as, as you would on radio so i think radio are doing it better than on tv and you know how tv do that i'm not quite sure but hmm. i think um i think overall I, I don't i think it's i think it has been a bit overstated this foxification idea um to hmm. be honest but then at the same time i think the bbc do need to kind of pull their socks up as well and think you know we need to be appealing to everyone in society and i think if I also might say, I think one of the reasons why the BBC have been labelled as this liberal woke institution or whatever is because they have, um, and I think quite rightly, understood over the last few years that the BBC doesn't attract youthful audiences. It's not very good at getting young people to watch their shows. So I think what they've actually done is not a pandering to the liberal elite, but what they've actually done is pandering quite rightly, I think, to youth youthful interests and the interests of people in universities and things like that, I think that's done much better now. Um, so I don't know. I don't agree with that idea of, of the BBC being a liberal institution. I don't think that's the case. I think what they're actually doing is trying to broaden easy, their appeal. I think the, the, the liberal um, kind of liberal institution BBC argument is an easy uh, thing to make and be levied against. If we look at kind of the varying opinions uh, of age, uh, like how age correlates to the opinion of BBC, um, there was a study which I was reading in relation to this report, which said that young people tend to deem it more as an establishment, pro-conservative, pro-slightly right-wing bias, whereas people over 50 tend to see it as this kind of woke liberal, um, woke liberal elite also. Um, so I do think that it, it very much depends on age and uh, obviously depending on political bias as well. And then it's easy to pin the opposite on the BBC when it is in the centre, kind of bringing back to what I said about it's, it's easy to be in the fat firing line when you're trying to appear objective and, uh, unpart and, and unpartisan and in the middle. Um, but what you were saying relates to my final question, which is also um, going back to this idea of um, uh, Ofcom regulating these channels. Um, there was a report from The Economist which spoke about online Ofcom is less fierce in comparison to controlling broadcasters. It regulates streamers such as Amazon and Disney Plus, but the rules cover only things like inciting hatred and product placement. Stream news need not be impartial. 
So my question, uh, my final question is, viewers shift from linear TV to streaming platforms like Netflix make this an interesting debate about how the more traditional GB news, prod, uh, the, the more traditional GB news broadcasting setup of rolling news will compete with the streaming services of News UK TV, which looks to be able to maneuver more around Ofcom rules. What are your opinions on this? Um, well, what I would say is actually, I think I don't think it will be as effective because if you look at the the, the generic type of person in my eyes that that would stream more than watch TV, it tends to be the younger generation, people who have Netflix subscriptions at universities or, or Amazon through the Amazon student deals, etc. There's not many people above the age of 65 or even 60 that would actually go on to these streaming platforms and watch this Murdoch news channel. And obviously the Murdoch news channel is centered, going to be centered on more right leaning people. It's quite obvious. And, and, you know, it's data shown that people over 60 are more likely to be right leaning than people under 60 or even under 25 is in, in the most extreme cases. So I think actually it's not going to work very well for the Murdoch news team because you're actually not going to you're not going to be capturing capturing the audiences that you're trying to capture if you had it on TV on terrestrial TV which is actually what Andrew Neil's doing he's making sure that it's on all platforms I think that's a much better strategy um than than what Murdoch's doing yeah I think that's an interesting take uh what's your opinion Sasha perhaps that's that's his strategy in order to uh try and um uh incorporate uh the youth in 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 the news that he's trying to put out and perhaps change their opinions in, in order to make them more um, uh, susceptible or, or susceptible is a bit of a strong word, but um, more uh, less hostile to the idea of a right wing um, understandings of, of the world. Um, so it'll be, it's, it's an interesting point and we'll have to wait and see what the result is. Um, I can't, I, I agree with you, Luke. I can't imagine many young people in the UK um, gearing towards that but at the same time there's been a lot of surprises in terms of um, how democracies are struggling at the moment um, and uh, if that feeds into this then uh, we might experience something that we weren't expecting which to be frank a lot of um, left-wing and liberal um, uh, political commentators um, etc have um, have failed to reconcile with and failed to understand completely with the rise of um, more right-wing outlets and and the popularity that they've um, uh, been able to amass. Should, should it boil down this kind of my final question, though, in your comparison of left-wing response to right-wing response? Personally, I don't think that we should have news platforms which are partisan or which look to cater to specific political lenses, because then if you're being fed news through one angle, and through one perspective, like you're never going to get a clear picture of the subject. And that's why I completely agree with what you've both been saying and what Luke was saying about kind of the integrity of the BBC. I completely agree with that and with its importance as a news platform. Obviously, it has its faults. Uh, but like, like we've kind of said throughout this segment, it's easy to be at fault when you are trying to be the objective one, the impartial one, the one in the middle. Um, but my, 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 my final question is kind of flipping this on its head and say that a left-wing news channel was forming in, in, the, in, in broadcasting or in streaming services. Should it just boil down to a shouting match between right-leaning media and left-leaning media? Because I don't think that's the direction that news should go. Not at no. all. And it's, 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 again, it's a symptom of, of broader discussion in our, in our society. Like, and 
I've experienced it within my own family as well. I mean, with Brexit, it was, it was a very contentious issue, but the way that the discussions were had between a lot of people, and I imagine many people who are listening to this would relate to it, is that they, they, the, the discussions became so contentious that the um, members of, our, of my family like fell out. It was very much like a, a younger, older generation divide, but these debates that they were having um, really were, I don't know, they, they were divisive rather than, rather than unifying or, or, or coming to an understanding. And I think that with this partisanship of, of news outlets, it just feeds into that. And hopefully as a society, well, you'd ho hope as a society that we'd, we'd regulate that a bit more and, and also not indulge in, in just having um, our views that, uh, or the views that we sympathize with just reflected on us. We should try and understand the other side rather than just catering to what's easiest for us and what, what most agrees with our, our worldview as it is. Yeah, but I could also just build on to that. I think that's exactly right, Sasha. I think also when you have this left and right wing shouting match at each other, what actually loses is the news coverage itself. You lose track of the actual stories that you're trying to present. And you're, you're basically hindering the main journalistic principle, which is making sure that you're presenting and updating the public with the news of, of the day uh, in a manner that people can understand to and relate to in an emotional sense. And I think if you have this left and right wing shouting match, what you're going to get is, is that losing of that emotional side of journalism that is so important in today's society. And I think what if you go back to what happened on, on Good Morning Britain and the way in, in which Piers Morgan conducts his journalism, it's, it's very counter, counterproductive because all you could see on Good Morning Britain is Piers Morgan arguing with a, a left-wing individual on whatever, on climate change or on, on racism or whatever. And actually what loses out is the, the people themselves that have either been affected by environmental change or the people who've been affected by racism who want to know more about this subject. And instead of the, the journalists asking the right questions and holding these people to account, what you're actually getting is just journalists showing their points of view, which I think is the worst thing that can happen on broadcast media is when journalists show their point of view. That's not their job title. That's not their job role. And they should, they should leave their opinions at the door. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, this was uh, my story. Um, and it's been quite big at the moment recently. Um, over the last year or so, or over the la last year or, and a little bit, actually, we've seen this huge increase in uh, people protests. We saw it with the Extinction Rebellion protest that occurred last year. Uh, we then saw it over the last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and then more recently, we've seen this massive people-led movement uh, regarding the death of Sarah Everard, who tragically lost her life um, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, and a vigil was held um, in Clapham Common, which turned quite violent. The police uh, became quite violent towards protesters. Um, and what's been in the news recently is a bit of an outpouring towards that um, in Parliament. Um, and that's due to a piece of legislation that the government has brought through called the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Um, and uh, it, it's a big piece of legislation. I think it's going to be too big to talk about now because there's just so many things in it. Um, but the thing that has been the most controversial part of the legislation has been the powers that police, are, uh, that the government are trying to bestow onto policemen regarding protesting. Um, so just a bit of a rundown of how the bill will change these these police powers. So um, the police will able be able to impose a start and finish time on the protests. They can also set noise limits. 
Um, and they can apply these rules to demonstrations by just one person. So even if just one person is protesting, they can still implement these powers. Um, so, and if you refuse to follow these police directions, you could be fined up to £2,500. Um, obviously, this has been a massive news story uh, that's that's occurred in Parliament at the moment. Uh, Labour Party and the left-wing political parties talk about human rights as a main uh, reason why they can't support this legislation. Um, the government have said that that human rights is going to be taken into account with this legislation. However, there's still big, um, big question marks about that. So my first question is going to be, um, you know, what are the implications on democracy of this piece of legislation going through unamended? I think a really interesting parallel, parallel which I've um, been considering recently is um, the British government's been welcoming Hong Kongers fleeing from the Chinese regime to the UK as um, kind of getting citizenship, nationality status, uh, bring, bringing these people in uh, under the argument that China is a repressive government, an authoritarian government which impinges on its people's civil liberties. How ironic is it to invite people from Hong Kong to the UK uh, criticizing a government for impinging civil liberties when our government at home is doing exactly the same thing. Like, I, I just think that, that the, the, the deep-rooted irony of that does quite amuse me, but the situation is not amusing at all. It's actually quite dark. And I'm, I'm really, personally, I'm really surprised that, I'm not by the members of the cabinet, but Boris Johnson himself, who um, seems to pride himself on his kind of, um, strong attachment to liberalism as he interprets it, classical liberalism. Um, it's just completely against that. It goes against this narrative that he's kind of constructed about his political views. <laughs> and uh, it's it's like, it, it, we, we are literally playing by the playbook of regimes like China or Putin's Russia, where people can't protest. And when we're thinking about protesting, we need to look into the future as well. What, what, what the government is predicting that people will be protesting about soon. Let's think about kind of, um, agriculture, fisheries, uh, things that were involved in the Brexit negotiations and problems around those. What happens two years down the line when we realise that there were serious issues with the Brexit negotiation trade deal and then people can't protest to kind of make their demands heard by the government because of this legislation? I think it plays into that broader picture as well. So yeah, there's, there's loads of angles to kind of consider this. And if you can, if you compile the idea of um, the strains that uh, COVID and the, the borrowing that our country has done uh, that will put on the economy and therefore people's jobs um, in the future, that anger and, and frustration and need to protest will, will only increase. The one thing I, if you talk, if you think about it in consequence, though, this bill might do the exact opposite of stop uh, of stopping protest. In fact, it might wake people up to the idea that we're slipping into a world where democracies aren't what they used to be and our world is losing its meaning and losing touch with what we once held valuable, like liberalism, like the ability to protest, like political engagement, and in fact might kickstart something other. Um, and I'd hope that is the case. I'm, I'm going to be attending a, a protest next uh, Sunday, the 21st, on College Green in Bristol um, to protest against this bill um, because I think it's ridiculous and um, I'd got, I found I one of my friends on Facebook actually posted about this earlier today. And if it's OK, I'd like to read a bit of uh, what she posted. Um, she says, I'm, baff I'm baffled as if the Black Lives Matter protests and the Re Reclaim the Streets protests have led to a bill, which means you get more jail time for tearing down a statue than rape. These protests have given me faith in humanity. When something horrific happens, communities can come together and demand justice. 
quite literally protest so that everyone can feel safe. As if we teach politics, which uses other countries as examples of failing democracies, like we're talking about with Hong Kong. Our democracy is failing and it's scary. It's not even headline news. It lit well, to be fair, it is. <laughs> um, it literally feels like a parallel universe. Am I missing the point? Surely not. So you can see the anger and the frustration that, that maybe, maybe it's just our bubble that are feeling. Um, I hope that it isn't. Um, and I hope that it's not that contained. I, it, um, I guess we'll see when I go to the protests on College Green. That might give me a better idea of, of how widespread this outrage is. But surely it can't be passed. Um, surely it has to be amended in some way. Well, yeah, I was about to say that because there is a strong suspicion that this part of the legislation won't go through. There's obviously, as I said, there's a, it's a big piece of legislation that covers lots of different police powers, but this specific power doesn't look like at the moment it will go through. But let's let's pretend like it does go through for the for the sake of discussion here. Um, obviously, the, the, the one of the big things that happened on the University of Manchester campus recently was a big student demonstration against the uh, university leaders uh, about lots of different things, including the the fencing of students and the um, the uh, um, what was what was the thing that happened with that student the, the racial profiling incident. Yeah. Um, and you know what do you, what do you guys see as an alternative to holding to account people in power if we can't protest if we can't go on the streets and protest our way you know what what are what are the other options available to us as a as a citizenry to hold the people in power to account i think the argument that was made by um the home secretary was um she said it will encourage people to petition more for their demands to be made and kind of offer them those democratic avenues of kind of discourse and representation in that sense to have their arguments heard which Obviously, obviously, it's utter nonsense because people won't rally together on the streets and then be like, OK, let's just sign this petition that will probably be met on deaf ears. Like, that's not that's not how democracy works. And I think a healthy democracy is one where discourse is public and it's on the streets. That's where it is healthiest. That's where it's most valuable, because it's the people getting together and making their demands heard. If you take that away from the people, I like it is I, I don't see any other avenues re realistically apart from protest of really making people's voices heard and I think what's important here is also the context of COVID because I think um, the like the infringement and we've had a long talk about this on media of kind of the civil liberties argument and taking away people's civil liberties for the for the sake of the national interest in the case of COVID for the sake of national health security um, but this can be applied to any argument and I think Governments have realised that uh, before COVID, they were cautious about, especially in Britain, very cautious about taking away people's civil liberties because they thought that people would fight tooth and nail to retain to them. But once COVID happened and we were faced with a global pandemic and such a cataclysmic event, people were comfortable and prepared to take away and offer up their civil liberties for the sake of uh, safety, for the sake of security. And now that governments have realised that people uh, en masse, as in like our society as a whole, would rather feel safe and secure than enjoy our civil liberties, then I think it's a slippery slope in taking those away. And you never know when the end may be with bills like this and what may come in the future. So I think that kind of COVID context is an interesting point in, in this debate as well. Yeah, because that was the, my final question, Peter, um, was obviously this legislation has been framed, um, I think, 
you know, in particular relevance to the COVID crisis at the moment and, you know, ways in which we could carry out protests in a COVID secure way. Um, for, you know, that that is my question, really. What do you say to that argument about whole, about the reasons why this government, the, the legislation has been put into practice in terms of to try and make COVID not a problem in, in, in society? You know, how can we protest in a COVID secure way as a way of explaining to the government, look, you've got it wrong here and we can actually do it in a COVID secure way? Well, if the legislation was merely temporary and it was and it had a sell by date, then I'd be much more willing to accept it. But the fact that it's it's come in as a bill that that hasn't got any of these clauses, then it means that we really have to fight against it. And I, and I think this is this is a common theme throughout history as well. I think um, while well, following the 9/11, especially, governments um, introduced uh, uh, terrorism acts across the board in order to cope with the immediate response to um, the threat that of, of terrorism, and yet many of those laws still remain in our societies, even though, well, I, I mean, in, in, they have been to an extent a threat to us, but I don't know if it warrants the, the powers that that, they st- that the government still has. And adding yet more, um, and yet more infringements on our civil liberties, like the right to protest, without having a time frame in place for these to be lifted, if it's merely um, COVID concerns, um, is a scary prospect and, and only and should only um, give us more motivation and and um, to go out and protest against these sort of uh, legislative um, introductions. So um, yeah, I think we've talked a lot about the the police and crime bill in terms of this specific part of the legislation. There's, I'll read out the other parts of the legislation so you are aware of them and, and our listeners can as well. So another parts of the bill are about changing sentencing rules so that serious criminals spend more time in jail than they. Can, before they can be conditionally released. There's a big uh, part of the legislation about jailing child murderers for their entire lives. Uh, maximum sentences for low-level assaults against emergency service workers. On terrorism, the bill creates powers to monitor offenders released from prison. Um, community sentences for less serious crimes to address underlying problems in the offenders' lives. And changes to sexual offences law to tackle abusive adults in positions of trust, such as sports coaches and religious figures. So, you know, across the board, this is quite an authoritarian way of dealing with crime, um, which I think reflects the Conservative manifesto, which they won the election on. Um, is there any parts of that legislation which you would agree with um, and, and you would be in support of? I think um, I'd, I'd need to read the legislation myself to find anything that I'd be in support of. But based on what you've said, uh, obviously issues like kind of like very very serious and heinous crimes like child murder and what what was what was the other crime you you mentioned? Um, but... So yeah, there was there was child murderers and then changes to sexual offences laws to deal, deal with abusive mm-hmm. adults, positions of trust. The, the main question here is: Should we take this kind of approach to crime and and yes. justice, yeah, or yeah, should yeah. we be more looking at things like? Um, you know, rehabilitation and more softer ways of punishing individuals. I think it's this is just symptomatic of the form of society that Pretty Patel wants to create. And um, by looking hard and tough on crime, 
she generates this idea of the government kind of delivering to the desires of the British public and also creating a strong and cohesive society, which is really interesting if we go back to our previous story and we were talking about this fractured and divided Britain. One way of kind of putting plaster over the fractured Britain, uh, I guess in Pretty Patel's mind, is to look tough on issues such as crime, to kind of try and present a guise of order and stability when in reality it doesn't exist. Um, I don't uh, also in, in not not directly related to this legislation, but I don't know if you guys have seen in the news. There's been it, it's been going on for a while and it's resurfaced recently. Um, it says um, there's a lot of headlines from various news platforms. Home Secretary Priti Patel considering sending asylum seekers thousands of miles away. Uh, Priti Patel urged to reject groundless speculation. Gibraltar will be used to process asylum seekers. This feeds into the same thing of kind of looking tough on crime, looking tough on immigration, sending migrant uh, in in this in this sense asylum seekers away to be processed offshore. It's a way of presenting this guise of stability, and I think that this is just all part of Priti Patel's politics. Sasha, do you have any any particular point of view on? whether or not you know we should take a more a more softer approach to crime and justice in the, in, in the UK at the moment? Well, I'd always like to um, prioritise rehabilitation over punishment. I, I'm, I'm quite an idealist in that sense that I, I think that um, giving people the benefit of the doubt and... and I mean, it, it very much depends on what crime you commit, I guess, as well. I, I agree, yeah. And, and that, that comes into what my next point. I, I need to look over the legislation in more detail myself, which I haven't done. Um, but this conversation has made me realise that I need to do. Um, but hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I think, I think it, 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 it is a difficult question because it's about drawing ethical lines and where, where we draw the line on how we consider how serious a crime is and how it should be treated is subjective. Um, people on, on the right in support of Priti Patel will deem this as good legislation in the sense that it's uh, being severely restrictive on criminality and taking it away from society. Whereas, like you said, like if, if you believe in restorative justice, people will see this as horrendous because the way to rehabilitate and I guess also help help um, mend the fractures of British society is through restoration, not just in our justice system, but restoration in society throughout. So it, it is it is kind of this argument between law and order or restoration, which one do you go for and how do you heal a society out of that? Yeah, I mean, this legislation obviously brings all of those questions to the fore as well. Thank you for tuning in. And once again, a special shout out to Johnny Hunt for producing the show. That's it for now. You're in focus.